I wonder uh, what goes through your mind when you're invited to a baptism. Especially if you're thinking christening, uh, you probably had some funny thoughts going through your mind. How's that going to work? But uh, I suppose if if your workplace is anything like the workplaces where I've worked, then you, you sort of, you get, you know what I mean, the sort of the coffee machine gossip. You know, the explanations that go on behind the person's back a little bit. And I think really the, the explanation that would tend to come for something like this would be wrapped up in two words. Oh, he or she has got religion. You heard that phrase, they've got religion. And so is that what this is all about? Has Sarah got religion? I suppose in, in a sense that might be true, but I want us to think about that for the time that we uh, have together now and, and explore that a little bit. What does it mean to get religion? I suppose the standard definition, it's sort of a loose, vague definition of of religion, Uh, there's lots of different religions, okay, we're not going to sort of go through all of them and look at the similarities and differences, but the standard definition of religion to me seems like it is uh, changing your behavior for some promised future reward from some higher power, whatever that higher power is called. Changing behavior for the sake of a future reward from some unknown higher power. Isn't that kind of what we think when we talk about religion? Well, I want us to look this morning at uh, a book in the Bible that actually, if, if you said to me, what is the most religious book? What is the book that talks about religion? This would be the first one that would come to mind. And so maybe this book is going to affirm that definition of religion, or maybe it isn't. Let me tell you three things about this book, and then we'll look at three bits uh, of text within the book, and that'll be it for the morning. Okay, first of all, three quick facts about the book. First fact, I suppose it's a bit trivia-ish, but we might as well uh, share it. It was the first book written after Jesus was on earth. Okay, so Jesus was here for about, uh, well, for 30-odd years, but for the three years where he was doing the miracles and doing all the things that he did, and then he died, and then he was buried, then he rose, and then he went back to heaven, the first book written is the one we're going to look at. It wasn't written hundreds of years later. This was written probably 15 years or less after the time Jesus was on earth. Okay, that's the first fact. This is the first book written in the New Testament. Okay, that's vaguely interesting. This one's better. This book was written by a relative of Jesus. Okay, so uh, Jesus, uh, son of Mary, stepson of Joseph, he had half-brothers and half-sisters. Same mother, different father. But one of Jesus' half-brothers, we're pretty sure, wrote this book. Now you might be thinking, there you go, it's biased, nepotism, right? Somebody who's got, you know, kind of, they've got an agenda. Well, actually, that's the interesting thing. You see, uh, this person, in fact, the whole family, uh, they were skeptics. If you look into the history, they didn't believe in Jesus while he was doing uh, his stuff, you know, doing his ministry and miracles. They didn't believe it. They thought he was mad. And, And if you know anything about skeptics, the hardest skeptics to convince are not the ones at a distance. They're the ones up close, aren't they? And so Jesus' family, absolutely convinced that he was a loon, that he'd lost his marbles, okay, while he was doing all that he was doing, later on, something convinced them. There was some sort of convincer, my guess is probably when he rose from the dead, you know, just just a guess, but I would imagine that probably was fairly convincing for his half-brother to see him again, uh, and then to kind of have to reevaluate everything. 
Because, in fact, two of his half-brothers end up writing books that are in our Bibles. There's the book of Jude, and then there's the one we're looking at. And so these uh, absolute skeptics, up close and personal to Jesus, were so convinced by something, probably Jesus' resurrection, that they became followers and ended up writing part of our Bible. Okay, that's just a piece of trivia, I suppose. How about the third one? This is the important one this morning. This book is Sarah's favorite book. Okay, and I thought, if this is Sarah's baptism, we've we just got to look at Sarah's favorite book. We're going to look at the book of James. Half-brother to Jesus, a book that is all about religion, that even gives us a definition of religion. It says true religion is this. This is what God wants, that you care for orphans and widows, and that you keep yourself unstained, unpolluted by the messiness of this world. It talks about all sorts of behavioral things that you'd expect in a book about religion, uh, how to treat people. It talks about how to watch your language. It talks about... Uh, Money, wealth, and poverty, and how those should be handled. It talks about wisdom and living well in this world. It's a book all about religion. So maybe James is going to affirm the fact that religion is about us getting our acts together, changing our behavior to please this distant deity for some sort of future reward. Or maybe he's not. Let's look at the book of James together. It will be on the screen, the bits that we look at, but if you want to follow along, make sure we're not cheating or doing anything kind of funny up front. Uh, you just grab hold of one of the blue Bibles. It's uh, page 856, I think. Yeah, 856, book of James. We're going to start off. We're going to look at a few verses in chapter 1, and then a few verses in chapter 2, and a few verses in chapter 4. Thinking about this issue of religion. Is it about religion or is there something deeper, no pun intended, going on with this whole Christianity thing? Okay, so James uh, chapter 1, if, if you're looking at page 856, you'll see the big uh, name James there. On the left-hand side, there's a big number 1, that's the ch first chapter. If you go down about ooh, two-thirds, you'll see a paragraph with a little number 13. Okay, that's the, the 13th verse, that's where we're going to uh, start looking. And what James is going to tell us right at the start here is really what is the problem with humanity? What is the heart of the human problem? Now, if James goes on to tell us that the heart of the human problem is that we don't behave well, well, then the solution should be that we fix our behavior. But actually, that's not what James tells us. James tells us that the heart of the human problem is the human heart. Let's read it and then just add a few comments. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's quite the family tree, isn't it? There, there's desire that gives birth to sin, and sin, once it grows up, it has a child, and that child is death. Parent, child, grandchild. That's quite serious sounding, isn't it? And, and doesn't it ring true? Just, just think about your own life, your own experience. Uh, you don't need to uh, you know, put your hands up or admit this publicly or anything, but isn't it true that our desires drive us? Our desires drove us in December to eat. 
Our desires uh, drive us in January to join the gym, right? And one of those desires will win out, and I'm not going to say which one, but by April the gyms will be empty. (laughs) See, desire drives us all, doesn't it? It's at the heart of who we are. It drives us to do good, to do bad, to, to chase this, to chase that. But what James is telling us is that desire leads in a certain direction. And that direction is uh, the direction of sin. And then sin that becomes a part of our lives. And let's be honest, we all have that. Things we do, things we say, things we think that aren't right before God. That sin, when that develops fully, we're dead. That's serious. That, that, that to me doesn't sound like something we can fix, even if you're a medical professional. You know, if, if you're a doctor and you get a, uh, I wonder, have you ever thought this? When a doctor's got a cold, does the doctor say to himself, it's a virus, you can't take anything? Or do they actually prescribe? I don't know. Maybe if there's a doctor, you can let me know afterwards. Do you prescribe something for yourself? Because actually, antibiotics do seem to work. But that's beside the point. That no doctor in the world can deal with the problem of their own death. And if James is right, which I believe he is, God inspired this, then how do we fix the problem of our own deadness? We we don't fix deadness by trying harder. We don't fix deadness by trying to make ourselves right, by trying to do good. It's just not possible. We're in trouble if what James is saying is true, that desire leads to sin, sin leads to death. The solution isn't going to come from us. Let's look at the next couple of verses because James introduces another parent that does solve the problem here. Verse 16, he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers, and brothers there include sisters as well. He's talking to everybody. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from, here it is, the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And on he goes. He chose to give us birth. You see, when when Sarah was up here, she came up here in a brilliant testimony, really appreciated that. And if I could just kind of summarize, basically what she said was, there was the old me, uh, and now there's a new me. And the new me isn't because of me, it's because of him, right? That's kind of what she said. And then she came down here, and like Tim said, going down was kind of representing, the old me's gone, dead, finished. And then... Sarah comes up and she comes out of here saying, okay, it's a new me, not because of the water. There's nothing special about this water. In fact, if you get close, you'll see there really isn't anything special (laughs) about this water. Uh, But but it's a picture of what's already happened. The old me is not the new me, and the new me is not because of me. This me is because of him. He has given me life. Life's a gift. A gift coming from a loving father. Not something we earn, not something we achieve, not something we can give ourselves because dead people don't wake themselves normally. But it's a gift from a loving father. How does that whole thing work? If we turn to chapter 2, we're going to look at another little passage in James. This, This whole, how a person goes from death to life, how they receive this gift Even that word gift kind of gives something away, doesn't it? You don't earn a gift. It's not, you know, here's your Christmas present. Now, I'll give it to you when. No, a true gift is a gift, right? It's, It's something that's handed. It's something that's received. 
Now, I want to give a little bit of explanation here because some people get a bit confused by James 2. If if you've ever been to a church like this before, you may have heard a preacher preaching from one of the books that Paul wrote. Uh, The Apostle Paul was another skeptic that was radically converted, ended up writing 13 books in the Bible, which is pretty good going. And uh, Paul wrote about faith and grace and forgiveness and life and all of these themes. And Paul had this phrase that's very famous. Maybe you've heard it before. You are saved by faith, not by works. It's by God's grace. It's not by works. It's a gift. It's not by works. And then you come to James 2. And in James chapter 2, James is saying that faith without works is dead. You go, there you go. The Bible can't even make up its own mind. Paul says it's just by faith. James saying faith without works is dead. That's a contradiction, surely. I don't think so. In fact, I know it isn't. But I know that people do get tripped up by it. So let me just explain a little bit. Then we'll read it together and see if, see if I'm right. Paul was writing to religious people. People that came from a Jewish background and, and had a, a very kind of religious bent to their lives. And they had the tendency of thinking that they were good enough, that they could earn it, that they could achieve it in their own strength. And so to them, Paul said, no, it's not of yourselves. It's nothing to boast about. It's completely a gift from God. It's by his grace. It's a gift. It's, It's by faith, not by works. That's Paul. But James, he's writing to people that are religious in quotes. People that say they're religious, but there's no evidence for it. And so when James is writing in his letter, what he's saying is, you say you've got faith, why doesn't it show? You see, well, what James is saying really is the same thing that Paul is saying, is that faith is the entrance into a life, this life that God gives. And it, it, it's life that is transformative. True faith transforms a life. And so James is saying, listen, if you're going to say you're a Christian and, and they take you to court, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? It's all very easy to say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, tick the box on the form. You know those kind of forms? It gives you a little religious options box. It's easy to tick Christian because I'm British or Christian because my grandparents were or Christian because I went to church once or or Christian because I was christened. Any of those things, uh, James would say, okay, but give me a bit more because I'm not convinced. You see, he's not being harsh. What he's saying is true faith transforms a life. It's all very well to say you're a Christian. But true faith changes you so that the the, the follow-up to true faith is good works. So there's no contradiction between James and Paul, but it's, it's important to see what he's saying there. Let's, let's look at it together. James, it's in chapter 2, so it's page 857 now. You'll see the little title, Faith and Deeds, if you're looking in the Bible. Uh, let's start at verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And James responds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You see what he's saying there? True faith works. True faith transforms because true faith is the entrance point into this life that God gives. And God knows that our problem is not just behavior. The heart of the human problem is the human heart. 
Which is why when we place our faith in him, when we trust him, he works on us from the inside out. And it shows, doesn't it? You see a life completely transformed. You start asking questions, saying something's going on there. But what's changed? What's changed is God's gift of life. I don't know if you've had this kind of conversation. I've had conversations with people who say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. James addresses that next. Look at verse 19. I'll let him say it because it's a bit harsh. I wouldn't want to say it. Verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see, it's, not, it's not enough. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. You can say you believe that there's a God. You, you, that doesn't, that's not what we're talking about. Demons believe that there's a God, and they're petrified of him. And actually, if you say, yeah, I believe there's a God, I believe there's a higher power, I just don't know who he is, then you have every reason to be scared, every reason to, to shudder, to be petrified, because if there is a higher power, and he's going to judge everything, what hope do we have? Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us falls short. None of us can claim perfection. How can we stand before a holy God and have hope? Unless he gives us righteousness. Unless he gives us right standing before him. And I'll explain that in a couple of minutes. You see, it's not enough to believe there is a God. That's not the kind of faith the Bible talks about. It's not enough to to, to do good things without having faith in this God. That doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't impress God. What it takes is to trust what he offers. The offer of life. Now... James goes on to give an example from the Old Testament, and you may not know the Old Testament very well, but I I suspect you might have heard of the example he gives. It's from the life of Abraham. Okay, I'll just explain it, and then we'll read it, and hopefully you'll see what I'm talking about. The life of Abraham, Abraham was 2,000 years before the time of Jesus and James and all these people in the New Testament, so 4,000 years ago. Abraham, in a sense, is kind of the beginning of the story. It's the the one that God kind of began the whole Israel thing with, the whole uh, story of of God's work in the world. And he actually gives two examples. One is maybe the only story you heard of. Have you ever heard of uh, Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac? And he takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, and he takes him there, and he raises the knife, and he's ready to kill his son, and then God stops him. That's the story that that James refers to. And then he also gives a quote from Genesis, from the same sort of uh, part of the Bible. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a bit complicated phrase. It was credited to him as, as righteousness. I'll explain that with an illustration in a moment. So those are the two illustrations. Those are the two bits of the story that James is going to bring out. Let's look at what James says about that, because this makes sense of, I hope, what we're trying to show here, that we're not saved by what we do, but by trusting. Verse, uh, where are we up to? 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. So, 
Abraham took Isaac to the mountain, obeyed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous before God because of what he did, right? That's not what James says. James uses those two examples, but his point is the exact opposite of that. Let me explain with a number, a simple number illustration. Don't worry if you failed A-level maths or GCSE or O-level. or, In fact, just remember when you learn to count. It's quite easy, this. I'm going to give you two numbers. Your job is to put them in order. All right, you ready? I'll give you a moment to think about it. Two numbers, 22, 15. Think, 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 think. Hopefully that's not too tricky, right? Why do I say those two numbers? Well, 22 is chapter 22 of Genesis. That's where the story is of Abraham uh, obeying God uh, and taking Isaac to sacrifice him. Chapter 15 is where that quote comes from. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Which one comes first? Was it that he obeyed so he was declared righteous? No, that's seven chapters later. It's before, in chapter 15, that he believed. He didn't do anything. He didn't earn it. He didn't try. He didn't fix. He didn't make things right. He didn't go over his whole life plan or any of that kind of stuff. No resolutions, no commitments, nothing like that. Just, I trust you, God. He believed. And that's why he was declared righteous. It was credited to his account. And from that point on, God was working in Abraham from the inside out so that by chapter 22, he was willing to do something Radical to sacrifice his son at God's word. You see, faith comes first. Faith transforms a life. Yesterday, I uh, received an envelope. You know, certain envelopes that you recognize, you know what's in it? It's a bank statement. You, you, you recognize bank statements? I don't know if that fills you with hope or fear when you see that envelope. Uh, but I uh, got this bank statement, opened it up, and you check which bank it is. You know, is it Lloyd's TSB or NatWest or Barclays, or if you're a bit sophisticated, Santander, you know. But whichever bank it is, you get your statement, your heart sinks. Now, imagine opening the envelope and opening the statement, and you look at the top, and it says Heaven's Bank. And you go, hang on a minute. I don't have an account in Heaven's Bank. And yet, as you look down, you're convinced very quickly that you do. Because under the list uh, there, the statement list, it gives you everything you've ever said, done, thought that was wrong. That would give you a sinking feeling, wouldn't it? Page after page of that stuff. You sort of look around make sure no one else can see it because you'd be ashamed of it. I, I would. You go through that thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't realize it's true. I've got, a, I've got an account in heaven and, and it's all negative. I hate to think what the total is. Hate to think what the charges are for going this overdrawn. But then you look on your desk and you're sort of sitting there dumbfounded at a loss for words. You see another envelope, same kind of envelope. You think, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, I suppose. Uh, might as well look at this one too. And so you get that one and you open it. Your heart's going to, oh, this is terrible. And this one's got a cover letter. And the cover letter from Heaven's Bank says, please disregard your previous statement. There has been a change in the status of your account. This is now your true account. It's enclosed. And you move that cover letter and you look and the, the slate is clean now. All of those sins, the things you've said and thought, the gossip, the lust, the lies, uh, the things you've taken, the things that you've not done that you should have done, all of that is gone. And it says total of sin. And it says BACS, backs, transferred. It's gone. That's been transferred to another account. And then below it, it says backs transfer in. Oh, this is promising. What's this? 
the total righteousness of God. That's the kind of bank statement you'd like to get, isn't it? All of my sin transferred to something else, to somebody else's account. All of his righteousness transferred to mine so that this is who I am now. This is what I am declared to be before God. Completely righteous like Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him. See the language there? It was credited to him as righteousness. That's how this faith thing works. You don't earn it. You don't do it. You trust. You receive. And it works on us from the inside out. Amazing stuff, isn't it? What kind of a God would do that? What kind of a God would would transfer our uh, sins to him and his righteousness to us? Especially if the penalty for sin is death. Especially if the the bank charge, if the the total uh, sin total leads to death. Well, it's got to be a death. How does that work? I'll tell you how it works. The God who asked Abraham to sacrifice his son but then stopped him was the same God who willingly sacrificed his son for us. Didn't stop himself. He followed through. What, what kind of a God are we talking about? Are we talking about a higher power that's out there somewhere, that sort of impersonal force? No. The Bible talks about a God who is a loving father who gives us life. And how does he do that? He does it through the sacrifice of his son. When Sarah came up here, And she gave her testimony, which I can't repeat because it was too good. But basically, there's the old me, and now there's the new me. And it's not the new me because of me. It's the new me because of him. And then she came down here. It wasn't just her death and her new life. She was saying, I'm with Jesus. When he died to pay the penalty for sin, it wasn't his sin. It was my sin he died for. And when he rose again, and and he came uh, back from the grave, and he's alive, that's my life now. My old life's gone. It's his life that's living in me now. It's all about Jesus, because he is my friend. James uses that word, verse 23. Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Isn't that beautiful? I don't mean Facebook friend. All right? We've got a few of those. That's nice, but it's nothing compared to a real friend. You know who a real friend is? Someone that you can call anytime. Someone who uh, knows you and, and believes in you and, and, and they're available. And if it comes to it, they'll sacrifice for you. Well, that's what Jesus is. That's what God is. He's a friend to us. He doesn't speak from heaven and say, get your acts together. He knows we can't. And so he sacrifices for us and says, just trust me. I'll be your friend. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? I don't know, but to me, religion just doesn't quite cut it, you know. It just seems to be falling short of this description of of all that God's done. But let's look at one more passage, a third passage, just before we finish. Because it gets even better. Not only is God a loving Father who gives us life. Not only is he a, a, a sacrificing friend goes to an even more intimate relational level in chapter 4. Same page if you're in the Blue Bible, page 857, over in chapter 4. See if any word jumps out at you from verse 4. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Did you notice that word there, you adulterous people? I'm not going to define it because those of us that need to know what it is, we know what it is, right? 
Maybe you've seen the damage that it does up close. Maybe you've felt the damage. Because uh, uh, the, the damage of adultery is the ultimate betrayal, isn't it? The most painful of all pains. Why? Because it betrays the ultimate relationship. The most exclusive relationship. You can't commit adultery against a colleague. You cannot commit adultery even against a friend. You can only commit adultery against a spouse. And God is using that language of his relationship with his people. That's powerful. That that when we go after the things of the world, when we are friendly with the world and go after other stuff, when we give our hearts to another lover, we're committing adultery against God. That implies that we're in a marriage with him, doesn't it? Look at verse 5. Just reinforces the same point. He, he says, do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Isn't jealousy part of a marriage relationship? Maybe you've seen the damage that jealousy can do. Jealousy is a powerful emotion, isn't it? But even though it can do damage, a true, healthy, good marriage should have jealousy as part of the package. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm married to Melanie. We've been married for 12 years now. Uh, If you don't know Melanie, uh, look around. She's the one that's very close to giving birth. And I was a little bit nervous this morning uh, when I heard her up and about very early, thinking, no, Lord, not today. We've got a baptism we've got to get through. Uh, But she's made it this far. Any time now is fine. And uh, and we love each other. We're, We're married to each other. Melanie wouldn't feel loved by me if I wasn't jealous of her. If if her affection goes from me to somebody else, my jealousy will show. And if my jealousy didn't show, she wouldn't feel loved. If I sit, you know, put my feet up, read a newspaper, whatever, dear, love you, bye. Oh, that's just wrong, isn't it? A true marital relationship is, is bonded together. There's this intensity to it. And that's the language God is using of his relationship with us. God is not the kind of God who puts his feet up, reads the newspaper and just lets us get on with whatever. He loves us. He wants us to be close to him. It's a loving father who gives us life. He's a a sacrificing friend who gives his life and he wants to be a husband. To love us with the jealous love of a perfect spouse. Passage goes on, you might be thinking, hang on a minute, jealousy, that's just smothering, that's just ugh, that's too much, can't cope with that. Well, that's okay, verse 6, he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This isn't something to fear, this is a beautiful thought. I don't know if I've ever said, in fact, I know, I've never said this in a church before. Forgive me if this just seems to be a little bit wrong to say in a church, but all of us are caught up in a love triangle. That's what this passage is going to say essentially here. We're caught in a love triangle and there's two others that desire our affection, desire our devotion. On the one side there's God who loves us, who gives us life, who sacrifices for us, who wants to be very close to us and jealously yearns for our uh, love relationship with him. And on the other side there's the devil. The devil wants us too. And some of us have experienced what it's like to say, okay, let's go the devil's way. And we've experienced how empty that is. Ah, free love. Lifetime of guilt. 
an escape, drugs, alcohol, whatever, and it just becomes a snare that's so hard to get out of. The devil tries to entice, tries to draw us in, but his offer is so fake because his motivation is so evil. And on the other side, there's God saying, come on, I love you. Come to me. Draw near to me. And we're caught in the middle. Which way will we go? Which way will will we turn our hearts? And so James says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. You see, this is the language of marital intimacy, of marital closeness. Of the most exclusive and beautiful and wonderful relationship. We, we just struggle with that on earth so much. But God uses that as the ultimate illustration because that's how much he loves us. And so we come back to our original definition of religion. Fixing our behavior for some future reward from an unknowable higher power. Is that what the Bible's offering us? I'm sorry, if that's what religion is, that's alien, that is foreign, that is something entirely different to what the Bible is all about, to what Sarah is testifying to this morning. What James, the book that's the most religious book in the Bible, is saying is that the heart of the human problem is the human heart, and we cannot fix it, but God can. And God does that not because he's some distant higher power that has no real uh, desire to be known by us, but because he loves us. As a loving father, he gives us life. As a self-sacrificing friend, he gives his life. And he invites us into a love relationship, invites us to draw near to him so that we can know him personally. A relationship, as Sarah put it earlier, that does satisfy, unlike all the others. God does a work in us that shows through our lives, but it's his work. Got religion? Nah. Got relationship. The best relationship there is.